AF with Tony Tone and LA. Yo, what's up? This is your boy LA, aka the Love Ambassador, coming to you straight live and direct from the Jungle Studios. What? What? Oh, look, I'm not gonna lie, it is seriously, seriously hot up in Perth, Australia, at least in mid 30s, but it feels like it is <laughs> like 50 degrees or something like that. Anyway, a uh, special shout out to uh, all the people around the world that tuned in to the interesting last podcast on pornography. Pornhub stats and the psychology of porno as well. Some food for thought. But uh, next, we're going to go into a little bit more of a serious topic. Uh, I've always been a fan of politics, uh, special global politics, what's going on in the world. Uh, it's a, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of things in life is thanks to parenting, and I grew up in the house, so in particular, uh, with my mother that was very into what was going on in the world and, you know, what was happening and how it affects our lives and always thinking about the bigger picture. So today I'm going to talk about a country that until recently our only news having the uh, most Miss Universe winners in the world, uh, which is Venezuela. So, yeah, it's a shout out to our South American cousins. Um, you know, we're going to try and spread the love around the world to the best of our ability uh, throughout the year on this podcast. And, you know, because it's a crazy thing to uh, be in Perth, Australia, but people literally listen in all parts of the world. So, uh, you know, we have uh, listeners in Chile, in particular in Argentina, uh, Brazil, recently as well, uh, in Colombia as well. Shout out to Paolo. So just a quick background, uh, Venezuela is a country of 30 million people. It is situated next to Colombia, uh, right in the northern part of what is essentially South America. Um, what's important about Venezuela before we go into the crisis and why it's relevant to you is because they are the biggest, well, they have the biggest oil reserves in the world. They're the biggest producers of oil in the world. So I know a lot of people think about Saudi Arabia and Iran and Kuwait and Iraq, but this, like, <laughs> yo, they've got, they've got nothing compared to Venezuela. And Venezuela since 1998, has been ruled under, well, I guess the best way to describe it is like a socialist regime. Um, it's known within South America as the Bolivarian Revolution, uh, which was started in 1998 by Hugo Chavez, himself a military man. Um, he passed away a few years ago and was taken over in around 2013 by the current president, Nicolas Maduro. <laughs> Pardon my... Uh, Part of my pronunciation, I literally learned Spanish for about six months, and all I remember is esto caliente, which means I am horny. <laughs> uh, now, look, so the current president uh, is, is in the midst of a massive crisis, uh, economic, social, health, uh, international, and he's been challenged by Juan Guaido, Guaido, who is now considered by the West to be the rightful president. So we've got two things at play here. We've got the biggest reserve of oil, which is obviously affecting our daily lives when we go to fill up our car with petrol or electricity, etc., etc. 
And it's also, in a way, sort of a throwback of like the old school Cold War between the American democracy, uh, if you can call it that, um, and the socialist communist, uh, which says since the global financial crisis and and the collapse of the financial systems in the last 10 years, the left has had a bit more strength. So this also in terms of the global uh, geopolitical mix is also coming to the fore because a lot of the people in the West are tr still trying to say, because they're under pressure for what they're doing currently as politicians, oh, we'll look at Venezuela, the socialist revolution doesn't work. So let's have a look at a, at a couple of facts. Right. Uh, Venezuela's uh, population is about 30 million. Um, the economy is based on 95% of the exports is petroleum. Uh, when Hugo Chavez took power, actually, um, there are some certain facts which have to be put forward to make it a balanced argument. So basically, uh, the GDP per capita was the same when he took over in 1998 as it was in 1963. Um, and if Anything it had fallen by one third since its height of 1978, and what purchasing parity, which is your purchasing power, uh, was one third of 20 years before. Now, um, in the 12 to 14 years uh, that he was in power, the GDP did grow, um, welfare was at its lowest. Uh, the lowest levels of poverty, um, welfare was, it became a welfare state, so lowest levels of poverty. At 6% was spent on education GDP. Malnutrition went from 21% to 5% of the population. Uh, doctors tripled. Um, and also it was interesting with the revolution, um, because I was in Cuba in 2004, when I finished school, my dad kind of turned and said, you know, you've done well, you studied hard, you know, family saved up some money, you can go anywhere in the world. And at the time I was uh, playing in, in a salsa band and I was a pianist, well, concert pianist as well. And uh, I was like, well, you know, let's go check out Cuba. So I remember when I was in Cuba, in Havana, um, they were actually in exchange for oil giving doctors. And these doctors, the Cuban doctors, because Cuba produces an enormous amount of doctors per for, for such a small population, um, through that trade, the, the poor people were actually having access to health and education and, and proper medicine. But this is important to note because it completely changes around. But what was driving this was Chavez kind of came in a, in a perfect storm, I must speak, that the fuel price, again, that's the main export, was around $100, uh, and then it dropped to $50 in 2014. It's since recovered a little bit since then. So they had all this oil money that they were pumping back into the socialist ideas, which for a certain period, um, if you take away, you know, your ability to speak about the government, the, the people were better off and per head, you know, wealthier than Argentina for a while, which was always the the benchmark of the area. What happened was that once the fuel prices started to diminish, um, this also came in with Chavez passing away, with Maduro taking over, then all of a sudden you had what an economy based on enormous wealth from oil no longer having those resources. So that's what triggered off the, you know, <laughs> production decline, you saw a collapse of the economy, um, 
you saw the money that was once spent on education no longer there, the money once spent on health no longer there, um, and then that started to unravel the country upon itself. And then what was interesting for me was you always hear about US sanctions, but you wonder if they're kind of like a toothless tiger or what they actually do, because no one actually explains it. But in the case of Venezuela, um, when Trump came in, around 2017, he actually put sanctions in. And this has an enormous effect on Venezuela, because basically Citgo, which is their main kind of fuel company, like, I don't know, like a, a Shell or a, or a BP or whatnot, is based in Texas, and so when you freeze the assets so you can't do use US banking, basically they can no longer pay the dividends back to the Venezuelan government. Uh, and on top of that, their bonds, so the Venezuelan government bonds are under New York law, so therefore they can't raise money. So you've now got, on an estimate, they said about $6 billion taken out of the economy. Now, if you're America and it's a trillion-dollar economy, $6 billion is like, a drop in the ocean, but for Venezuela, it was a massive effect. So you, what you basically got is the, with the petrol prices and the US sanctions coming in, the whole entire society starts to unravel because there's no money to do anything. So the only option that the government has to pay its government workers or whatever is to print money. So inflation goes up to about 80,000%. But what happens with inflation, for those that understand, don't understand, it basically means the money that you once had becomes worthless. And then for the cost of food and your day-to-day becomes more expensive. So what you essentially have is the whole entire society just capitulates um, and enters into, into poverty. Now, you add on top of that a regime trying to stay in charge, and what they do, they see, is the equivalent of a collapse to the Great Depression and the government using the military as what often happens with dictatorships to maintain power. So then you have two and a half million people to three million people flee. Um, what's interesting in this situation with the fleeing is Colombia, as we know during the Escobar years and whatever and the paramilitary years and what, had a very hard time and a lot of people escaped to Venezuela during those troubled times. So Colombia's actually been at the forefront saying, well, you helped us when we were down, so we're going to help you back. So they've taken on a lot of refugees. But on top of that, um, you have a housing crisis. So now there's around 2 million houses shortage. People are starving. It's become the murder capital of the world, 81.4 murders per 100,000. And 9 out of 10 hospitals have about 7% of the required supplies. And then on top of that, you've got the centralised government doesn't control the whole of the area. It's run by kind of paramilitary gangs. So the well, whom the West considers to be the president, Juan Guado, has kind of turned around and said, right, well, literally the people are starving. Um, there's no medical supplies at least let's feed the people. But because the government of Moado is trying to keep control, he's set up on the borders of the military to basically say, no, you're not allowed in. Because obviously once you start to feed the people, once you give them medicine, then they're going to obviously turn because they're in such dire, dire situations, right? So 
the government's fearing of losing even more control instead of using it as an American imperialism trying to take over the, 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 the socialist state. And that's where we're at in the news at the moment, where basically you've got this standoff. Now, the Cubans, the Russians, the North Koreans, all the old sort of Soviet dudes are backing the <laughs> current regime, and then the West are trying to back the, uh, the interim president. And what you've got essentially is a standoff. So will there be a military conflict? Um, from just the last readings, it seems like that would probably be one of the worst things that could happen. And then on top of that, because it'll be like another, you know, Libya or Iraq or whatnot, again, because like I said, the government doesn't quite control everything within the actual country. So you take, attack the military and then you've got everyone else that are on the paramilitary groups to deal with. Um, and then in terms of the military, I mean, they might need a coup, but then who leads a coup and then who takes it over? So you've got a situation which is actually exceptionally difficult because even if the regime steps aside and says, you know, we'll, we'll flee with the lottery, we'll take our billions and we'll head overseas and let's take, you know, a thousand people to top fly over to, I don't know, Cuba or somewhere to go into exile, the country still has a problem that it's so tied to the oil rates that... If that doesn't improve, how do you improve the economy afterwards? So I think what the West is really hoping for and to control that oil supply is to try and get one of their people in, basically. But at the end of the day, I think that the... I mean, my own two pence on it is really, no matter what your ideology or if whom you are in power, you should at least feed the people, <laughs> you know, like... You should at least feed them and, and, and allow them to have proper medicine because it's, I mean, no one's really winning. And if you really want to keep power, then if people get at this stage now where they're desperate, then there's no telling what they're going to do. So, like I said, it's an intricate plot, but why it's relevant to you is because <laughs> it's the biggest oil reserves in the world. So that's that. Uh, thank you very much for listening on that Topic now, just a quick story to I guess lead in. Um, I don't know if it's going to be the next episode or the coming episodes. We're going to be having one on St. Patrick's Day um, because my old soccer coach was a mad Irishman growing up, and it's always been a bit of a soft spot for the Irish. And uh, my friend, who's a <laughs> very involved in the Irish club and an old friend of mine from school, asked me to recount a story for him as kids for a bit of fun and he said well you know he'll keep pushing the podcast and quite frankly I run it by myself so <laughs> I've got to spread the love. Story goes like this, so 18 years old you go into all the house parties and everything like that and so what happens is obviously you used to have a drink and you used to smoke a little bit of weed and we go to this down to the local footy club and we make Right, me and my homies, we make like the biggest joint you've ever seen. Like in hindsight, it was actually freaking ridiculous, right? It was instead of the usual like normal big blunts that you have, it was about three times the size. And me and my homie, like we spent ages rolling this thing. So when you're 18, you're a little bit more worried about, <laughs> you know, security and what's going on, you know, like the innocence of youth, right? 
So we're standing and we're like, oh, well, the only, there's no one using the, 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 you know, the bathrooms. Go in the bathrooms. We'll start smoking this massive joint. So everything's going really well. And this is to my detriment, the story that fucking I've committed so sad. So we're sitting, we're smoking, we're smoking, we're smoking. I'm high as a kite. So is everyone. And my friend, <laughs> Celtic Pride, goes, if the security guards come thrown in the toilet, I've heard the security guards are coming, throw it in the toilet. So I've lobbed this joint. I didn't just drop it. I've lobbed this joint from about at least two metres away. <laughs> like, fuck, the security's coming. Lobbed it. <laughs> and as it's flying, it was like a movie. All you can hear is people like just going, no, fuck. I've realised the security is not coming, so I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I had a swish. It ended up in the toilet, and that joint was, uh, well, forever to my detriment. People <laughs> would never let me live that one down. Like I said, we had a serious topic, so I just wanted to end it on a more funnier note. I guess the moral of the story is to always <laughs> listen, no matter how high you are. But I still, to this day, <laughs> 15 years later, maintained that even he was so ripped, he said, throw, the security guards are coming, throw it in the toilet. But, you know, that's, uh, that's the fun of arguing it out. Uh, you tuned in to RAF, Random Attractive Friends. Thank you once again. And uh, stay tuned for some crazy new episodes. Woo-woo! Peace.